So back into the book of Acts, we are in chapter 2. This morning we're going to be looking at verses 14 through uh, 36. What this is, is the bulk of the sermon that, pre- uh, that Peter preaches at, uh, at, at this first celebration of Pentecost since Christ is resurrected and ascended back into heaven. So read with me if you would. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words, for these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. In the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and daughters and shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy, and I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor and smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words, uh, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor let your Holy One see corruption." You have made known to me the paths of life. You, you make, uh, will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, uh, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried in his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has Poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. The very same Peter who just a short time earlier had denied Jesus three times. A man certainly transformed. 
What we have before us this morning is one of the most astute and detailed and lengthy sermons in all of Scripture that was preached by anybody other than Jesus. By a man who would have been socially classified as uneducated. Didn't study under the Sadducees or the Pharisees. He studied under a lowly rabbi named Jesus. He had a purpose in his speaking, preaching. And that was to make sense of what was going on around them to the people who were gathered there. By preaching. Preaching anointed by the Holy Spirit that resulted in the conversion of 3,000 people that day in that place. Remember this, Peter was not preaching in a church building to a congregation of Christians. He was preaching in a very public place, in a very public context. It was a crowd that was composed of all kinds of people, and some of them were very antagonistic to him and to his message. Yet, when all was said and done, he was very faithful in calling, in his calling by Christ to carry the message of the gospel to the people. Preaching and preachers have been a very important aspect to the New Testament church, just as they were to the Old Testament church. Today, I think some people misunderstand what the purpose of preaching happens to be. Unfortunately, sometimes I think it's preachers that have an understanding, a wrong understanding of what preaching really has to do with. Some of you have heard of D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a very well-known Reformed pastor during World War II in London. He preached at Westminster Chapel there. Lindsay and I were there years ago, and we were able to actually go to church at Westminster Chapel one Sunday morning. Not a really big and fancy-smancy place, is it, Lindsay? I mean, the chapel's somewhat bigger than this room is here, but not a whole lot bigger than it is. But he wrote a landmark book on preaching. Now, let me just quote a few things that he said. He said, preaching has always occupied a central and predominant position in the life of the church, particularly in Protestantism. He says this, he says, the primary task of the church and of the Christian minister is the preaching of the word of God. In other words, this is the most central and most important thing that I do here. Everything else is secondary. What we do here, what I do on Sunday morning is the primary and principal thing that I'm occupied with.
as Reformed Christians, we hold fast to a lengthy heritage of preaching that in essence can be traced all the way back to the first sermon preached by anyone other than Jesus in the New Testament to the preaching of Peter. We believe very much in what we call expository preaching. Why? Because that is exactly what Peter does. That's what you're going to find with every single sermon that takes place in Scripture. It is expository preaching. In other words, taking Scripture, reading Scripture, dissecting Scripture, teaching what it says and explaining what it says, and then maybe most importantly, taking that and applying it to the people who are listening. Expository teaching is the method of selecting a larger portion of the Bible and expounding its original meaning and applying the message to the people who are hearing it. In other words, if you come here on Sunday morning and you walk out of here not feeling like you've been affected or encouraged or strengthened or anything in the preaching of the Word then the preacher has absolutely failed you. Preaching is one of the principal means whereby we are prepared and conditioned and enabled to fulfill the commission that Jesus has given to every one of us. Sadly today, there will be many pastors, many preachers in this nation, across this world, that will be teaching and preaching topical sermons. Not taking the Word of God and dissecting it and laying it open before you and explaining it and applying it, but taking a single word very often from a text that is taken completely out of context. what we call topical sermons. Very, very common in the church today. When I think about this, I remember my times at Florida Power, and I was there for many years. Before Lord and I got married, we got married. She became a Christian. I became a Christian shortly or a few years after that. And almost immediately, I began to hear from people, you know, because I was a teacher already, and a lot of people saw it as kind of as a practical kind of thing. He's teaching already. Now he's a Christian. Maybe God's calling him to be a teacher. So I began teaching very early on, and it was not pretty. <laughs> it's one of those deals where I started teaching really when I should, probably before I should have, because I didn't really know enough to be doing it. But people encouraged me to uh, nonetheless, and so I pursued it. And there are things that I taught and things that I said that I wish later on I could take and cram back into my mouth. Uh, because I didn't, I wasn't prepared, I wasn't ready. 
I didn't understand and appreciate how important it really is that you have, a, have an overall and, and very solid understanding of the overall picture before you dive into the water of the Bible. But there was another guy that I knew very casually uh, who was a co-worker, you know, at the, he actually worked at the plant, I worked at the training center, so we didn't know each other very well, and, but, but, but both of us answered a call into the ministry right about the same time. But he was not a Reformed pastor, he was not a Reformed Christian. He was very much like most of the other people that I had known up to that point. But I bumped into him one morning. We, you know, Matthew used to play soccer in the local league you know, every year. And, and I was there one morning. He happened to be there, too. And we bumped into each other. And we're talking. And it's a Saturday. And, you know, he's preaching in a church. And I preach in a different church. And this, that, and the other. And he asked me, uh, he said, uh, what are you preaching on tomorrow? And, and I briefly gave him somewhat of a synopsis of what we were going to be be doing and he said you know I was just over at the coke machine and all of a sudden my sermon came to me <laughs> and I'm telling you literally it almost sounded like he was saying that the coke machine spoke to him and told him what he was supposed to preach now you understand that he comes from a charismatic background where they read a lot into things and this and the other sometimes but I would imagine, just, just knowing somewhat about that particular person, he, maybe he's never preached a, an expository pre, of sermon in his whole life. It's all been topical. It's all been him sitting in, in his office on morning morning asking the question, what do I think the people need to hear about? See, by doing it the way that we do it here, by doing expository preaching through books, and that's part of expository preaching. It's not just taking a little tidbit here, there, and yonder. It's preaching through books, keeping it in context. Whereby is, is the only way that we can derive the original meaning of the text and then taking it and legitimately apply it to ourselves. People there were completely confused about what was going on. They had never experienced anything like this in their whole lifetime, and many of them were classified as church people. All of a sudden, these people around them start speaking in, in their own ears in what sounds like gibberish. Can you imagine something like that happening? Can you imagine what it would have been like to be there on the day of Pentecost and experience this? And we understand from Scripture what was taking place. It wasn't they, they were speaking in any kind of an unknown language. It wasn't known to anyone that happened to be gathered there that day that they were speaking in languages, different languages, that people there understood. In other words, they were spoken languages of the day. And we understand there was a reason behind it. It was so that they could hear the gospel in their own language. Why? So now they could go back home and tell it to other people. 
And yet there are people who will derive from this text that they were speaking in strange tongues that no one knew. That's just not the reality. This was an empowering, enabling act by God to give thrust and force to the Great Commission that Jesus had recently given to the disciples. What does Peter do? Does he just derive some passage from nowhere? He draws from the Old Testament. He not only preaches from one text, but he preaches from three. He tells them matter-of-factly that what they're experiencing is the prophecy of Joel that was given a long time before. And it's being fulfilled as they speak. Six hundred years after the prophecy was given. You would think that the Jewish people would have been rejoicing that this long-awaited prophecy had actually come to fulfillment in their hearing and in their seeing. But instead, there were those among them that just tried to explain it away as that these people are just intoxicated. They're drunk. They've had too much wine. Was this the first time something like this ever happened in redemptive history? A lot of Christians would tell you no, or they would tell you yes. But what I'm going to tell you this morning is no. This is not first time in redemptive history that something like this took place. It took place in the days of Moses. Moses gathered 70 men of the elders... Moses was doing all the preaching and teaching up to that point. Way too much of a task for one person, for one man to do. Moses gathered 70 men of the elders. Then what happened? Then the Lord came down and took some of the spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders. that they would now be able to go forth and not just preach and teach, but preach and teach by the power of the Holy Spirit. Moses also wrote this. He said, would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put what? His spirit on them. Everybody. So you understand that what was going on at Pentecost was prophecy that Moses set forth 
a very long time before it? One of the most amazing things about it is it seems as though all of the Jewish people were just caught completely off guard by it. No one was looking upon something like this with any kind of expectation. As we said before, we are very much dedicated to the concept of expository preaching in our denomination. Peter doesn't preach from just one text. He preaches from three different ones. Joel 2, 28 through 32, Psalm 16, 8, verses 8 through 11, and Psalm 110, verse 1. He's drawing from Scripture. He's not drawing from particular specific lessons that Jesus taught him that he heard. He's going to the Bible. This uneducated fisherman. You need to realize there were a lot of people in his audience that were way more educated than he was, that, that, that probably knew their Bibles better than he did, etc., etc., etc. But God, nonetheless, is using him. In doing what Peter does, he lays down one of the principal and primary rules when it comes to preaching. And that is this, and that is that Scripture interprets Scripture. Not the whims, not the thoughts, not the fancies of people. Scripture interprets itself. So to have a right understanding of what any text is teaching, you have to shift, sift it through the Bible. Our denomination really does have pretty high standards today for our teaching elders, otherwise called pastors or preachers. We not only hope, we not only ask, we demand that every candidate that comes that feels they're being called into a preaching capacity that they have a more than adequate understanding of the Bible. Do you understand that unless you have that, there's no way that you can preach expository? You know, so I'm sitting in my office during the week and I'm reading through things. And I'm, this is the Holy Spirit speaking to me. But I can't tell you when I read a particular text how another one comes to my mind. And I can see how the two relate. There's absolutely nothing, nothing more important for a preacher to really understand and know 
the ebb and flow of Scripture. It's the only way that you can preach expository. To preach the whole counsel of God effectively, you first first know the whole counsel of God effectively. And it's something that you have to work on all the time. You know, the people that I fear most for, the pastors I fear most for, and I'll come across them every now and then, these guys who think they do what they, as far as their Bible education goes and whatever, and they need to learn what they do at seminary, but as soon as they get out of seminary, they can do kind of a brain flush. It's absolutely essential that pastors continue to grow and learn and grasp the meaning of Scripture. And I'm telling you, you get to a point eventually where when you read a text, you're already thinking, what about that one? What about that one? I remember, sometimes you can't remember exactly where it is, but you can remember the words. And you can find it. I mean, that's an awesome task. I mean, no one knows the Bible like they should. No one knows the Bible even as much as they could. But it's all about rightly handling and dividing the word of truth. And if you don't know it, you can't do it. That we understand this. It, 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 it requires more than just knowing the scriptures because do you think the scribes and the Pharisees knew the Bible? You bet they did. Remember what was said about Jesus when he was 12 years old? Remember when they had been at uh, Jerusalem for one of the feasts and Mary and Joseph, thinking Jesus was with our company, had left to head back home. And only after some time they found out Jesus wasn't with them, and so they hurriedly went back to Jerusalem looking all over for him. And where did they find him? They found him in the temple listening to the teachers. And not only listening to them, but asking them questions. And what was said of him by those leaders was this. All who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. You understand that Jesus' childhood was many things, but one of those things was preparation time for him for the ministry.
As I said before, he preaches from three different texts. He draws them all together. As he said before, Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32, the, the coming of the Holy Spirit. But he doesn't stop there. He also draws from Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11. Acknowledging the fulfillment of a particular part of Scripture. Another thing I want to say to you this morning is that, Jesus, that Peter doesn't hold any punches. He preaches with boldness. He's not afraid he's going to step on people's toes. Now remember this, that just a few weeks earlier, there were those who were in this crowd who had, had been chanting crucify him in regard to Jesus. And when Pilate tried to release him, they said, his blood be on us and what? And on our children. In God's court, these people bear the guilt of Jesus' death, but ultimately everyone does because it's the sin of people that killed Jesus. But in spite of what they did, God raised him so easy for us to talk and think about the sins of other people. But if our understanding of divine election and predestination and such and such theology that is expounded by those notions, we have to understand and we have to confess that literally speaking, it was our sin that killed Jesus. not the sins of unbelievers. Because Jesus specifically and perfectly atoned for my sins and Butch's sins and Riley's sins and Lindsay's sins. It really is amazing the things that, uh, that Peter draws from these particular texts. Peter knows that David, when he, when he spoke forth Psalm 16, that he knows in this particular part of it that he was not talking about himself. Why does he know that? Because he knows that David eventually did die. And by the way, David's tomb was in Jerusalem where Peter was. 
And assumingly, his body was still there. It had been there for a very long time. But he understands and knows that David was not talking about himself. He was talking about one who would come forth from his bloodline. This Jesus whom they crucified. Peter says this matter-of-factly, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Talking about the resurrection. Peter being one of the we, he himself was an eyewitness to the resurrected Christ. Not once, not twice, but many times. Those to whom he's speaking, some of them have serious doubts about the resurrection, but at this point we need to understand Peter doesn't. He knows it. Notice his boldness. This Jesus you crucified and you killed by the hands of lawless men. Now, we know the Romans actually did the dirty work, but we know that it was the Jewish leadership and the crowd that bore the guilt for Jesus' death. Ultimately, we understand that it's all of us that bear the guilt of Jesus' death, right? Not the Romans who actually did the dirty work. But he makes it very clear that all that was done was done according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And after all, Jesus had to die before he could be raised from the dead, right? Somebody had to do it. And Jesus is now ascended into heaven. As Peter was preaching, as we're sitting here right now, he is in bodily form in the heavenly throne room with God the Father and God the Spirit. And God the Father is making all of his enemies a footstool for his feet. When it comes to bowing to Jesus, it is always, always a matter of now or later. Bowing now equals salvation. Bowing later 
means eternal condemnation. There were a lot of people in this audience that questioned more than anything else the divinity of Christ. There are a lot of people in this world today that are questioning more than anything else that you and I believe the divinity of Jesus. But what the scriptures say is that all will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You know, sometimes, even when we use the word all, we don't literally mean all. Sometimes we mean just a whole bunch of people or a whole bunch of this, that, or the other, and not necessarily exactly, specifically every single one. And you'll find that, that all is used in that looser capacity a good bill in the New Testament and the Old Testament. But this is one of those times when all literally means absolutely every single one. Not most or not a good number. But everyone. 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 That has ever breathed air. will confess the Lordship of Christ. For some, that will come at the end, not really the end, but the beginning, in a sense, of a life dedicated to that, to Him. For others, they will refuse to acknowledge His Lordship up to the very bitter end, and only when they're, they're, they're put in a position where they have absolutely no other choice will they acknowledge that it will be too late. They will be condemned for their apostasy. They'll be, con be condemned for the den their denial of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Some of those will be people that we know. Some of those will be people that we care about. People that we love. But let me ask you a question this morning. To whom do you want their salvation to be entrusted? To you? Or to Almighty God. And I want to remind us this morning that if he's determined to bring someone home, he will in fact do it. Not sometime. 
Not on occasion, but every time. It would have been so nice to be there. Can you imagine what it would have been like to be there or that first Pentecost? To experience this stuff firsthand. To see with your eyes and to hear with your ears. But do you understand that every single day for you and I ought to have a smidgen of Pentecost in it? I really do believe this. I don't agree with lots of what the charismatic movement stands for. I just don't. But if nothing else, they've done what the rest of Protestantism has not done for 2,000 years. That is, they have brought the Holy Spirit to the forefront. They have brought the Holy Spirit up front and made him more and more real and personal to every one of us. I mean, really, seriously, how much thought do you give to Jesus? Probably a lot. How much thought do you give to God the Father? Probably a good deal. How much thought do you give the Holy Spirit? Probably almost none. Which is a sad state of affairs because which one of those three is actually here right now? Which one is in this room? Which one indwells you and I? The Holy Spirit of God. He's here. He's with us. Unfortunately, very often we don't give a whole lot of credence to it. Let me just tell you this. I've had some experiences over the last year that I would not trade for anything. There have been times when I've been reading Scripture and times when I've been praying when I have felt the Holy Spirit moving in a way I have never experienced at all. Ever. And I've got a little bit of a taste of it and you know what I want? I want more. I want as much of it as I can have of it. To understand the Holy Spirit is, is, is the one who is here. The Holy Spirit is the one that makes God the Father and God the Son even personable for us. He lifts us up. He carries us along. He gifts us in the ways that we need to be gifted in order to fulfill the ministries he calls us to. He's the one that takes our prayers and conveys them into the holy throne room of God. When was the last time you asked the Father to give you the Holy Spirit? Have you ever in your life asked the Father to give you the Holy Spirit? And even if you have, have you ever asked the Father to give you the Holy Spirit abundantly? 
Some of you are saying yes and hallelujah for that. But I know there are a lot of you that haven't hardly given this any consideration much at all. And shame on me for it. Because you haven't heard me teach and preach a whole lot about the Holy Spirit now, have you? Hallelujah that I decided to come to Acts. To to me, it was kind of a logical thing. We left the Gospels. Now we'll just move right on into Acts to see where all of that led. But you know what I think more than that? That God led us here because this is what he wants for us. This is what we need. We need to give more thought and consideration to this very important central doctrine of our Christian faith. I want to challenge you as we're going through this book of Acts do me a big favor pray this prayer over and over again in the weeks to come Jesus give us the Holy Spirit abundantly Amen